Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Stockton podcast with Benji Nassau. Brought to you by LeCole. This is our Giro d'Italia stage one analysis podcast. We also have Bing Tank Tour stage five and overall GC and a brief Liège, Baston Liège, women and men's preview uh that's the order in which we're going to do it in but a brief note from our partner lacole for our giro podcast this giro show is made possible by our partner lacole they produce performance cycling apparel they're the fastest growing cycling kit manufacturer in the world as well as most committed to just road performance you'll likely already be familiar with them because they make the kit worn by byron mclaren in the pro peloton and the giro is a pretty special race for them uh because they produce all their kit in the factory they own at the base of Monte Grappa in the Venetian pre-alps. We'll see that later in this year, maybe not the factory itself, but we'll see that area later in stage 17. If you want to check out their kit, you can find them at www.lacole.cc. They have some pretty tasty bundle deals on at the moment, if I say so myself. But on to the Giro stage one, Benji, and then Bink Bank. Before I get into the profile, are you all right? Have you had to take a cold shower after all this, all those races finishing at once? Because Neither of them disappointed. Both of them were pretty good. Yeah, it's it's a bit much, to be honest. And I'm getting <laughs> scared for the fact that on stage 21 of the Giro, we also have that Vuelta stage to the Tourmalet and paris Bay on the same day. So I'm getting scared, genuinely. Today, I already had trouble following both the Bing Bang Tour and this Giro ITT because both races were pretty, uh, pretty great, I must say. So yeah, I've got the feeling that it's going to be a, a tough period to try and follow every single one of them. But I enjoy it. I definitely do. For sure. It's a big journey we've embarked upon for the next 50 days. Stage one, Giro. It's not a prologue. It was an ITT, a proper stage because it was 15Ks, too long for a prologue from Monreale to Palermo in Sicily. The It was a weird ITT, very strange, um, sort of in a good way, but maybe not. We'll talk about that afterwards. But 1.2Ks, 5% climb straight out the gate and KOM points at the top of that climb, 1,200 metres in. So they start climbing as they roll off the ramp pretty much, then a really fast descent. Like many riders hit over 100Ks an hour. Some hit 100Ks an hour in the recon before the stage with two hairpins at the end of it. Then a long straight section um, when they got onto Via Roma uh, where there was another intermediate time, the second one, and... Then, yeah, pretty much a flat run into the finish, flat run, straight run into the finish. It was just those two main two hairpins. I think it was another left-hand corner, yeah, maybe near the second, yeah, the second time check uh, when they're in Monreale. Apparently there were, well, not apparently, there, there literally were. There were forest fires or bushfires. I'm not sure what they were called exactly. There were fires near Palermo. Uh, there was no helicopter images today because I don't think it, was allowed to go like in the airspace of the military planes that were I think dropping water they like in Australia do the same thing in California maybe I assume you drop they use planes to drop massive amounts of water on the fires and so yeah with no helicopter images um and very windy 
very, very windy. I think you got more insight into that than I, Benji, because there's been following what the writer's been saying on Twitter. What was the general how did the, how did the wind affect the race today and when was it strong when was it weak and where was it coming from so it had like three periods in the race we started off with pretty high wind and we saw that by the fact that Dowsett, the first starter of the day already started leaning against the wind on his time trial bike didn't really dare to really use his his time trial steer and use his general usual steer and instead on some corners and on some straight lines as well because the wind was a bit too hard but at that point the wind was about cross tailish and that stayed the same direction towards somewhat the middle and the wind picked up towards the middle so you saw that the riders that started off at the start had a bit of an advantage but not a serious advantage on the riders that started in the middle and in the time checks that was clearly visible but towards the end the wind dropped which means that the riders that started very late had the disadvantage of not having as much cross tailwind in that descent area. So the first two and a half kilometers of that time trial after that first hill. So yeah, the wind changed a lot today and it influenced a lot of results. Somewhat ruined some GC plans of some riders, but on the other hand, we actually had that forecast the weather that was done today. So on paper, these teams should have been able to really see this coming and prepare for that and change your start times accordingly. If you know that the wind is going to go down and it's cross tailwind in the first half of the race, then as a team, you should be expected to change your start time of your leader to an earlier time period. But yeah, apparently that is uh, not the case for quite a few of our GC riders, but we'll dive into that in a second. So the hot favorite, he was like $1.50 before they rolled out for this stage was the Italian man, the world champ, Filippo uh, Organa for the Ineos Grenadiers. We saw on Bernie Isle put on Twitter a photo of his 60-tooth big chain ring. He's on that. Not, I don't actually think it's gold. I think it's kind of a chameleon color, like one of the giant TCRs in recent years um, from Ghana's Pinarello bike. And, yeah, he got the job done today. He... Rode a time of 15, 24, 58 kilometers an hour average, 58.831 it's saying, but I'm pretty sure he missed out by a fraction of a second on having the fastest TT time in cycling history. Um, so very, very close to missing that out. Might have been even less than half a second. And he seemed to have the ideal win today. So did uh, Thomas before him. Rowan Dennis didn't. Have ideal wind, but yeah, Ghana just he monstered this. He he did what was expected. Um, I actually thought it was unusual that if they really wanted Ghana to win for certain, you just make a 10k or 15k perfectly flat ITT course, and then he's going to win for sure. Uh, take out the technical elements. There were some technical elements at the start here. Um, he didn't do he did the climb pretty quick, and he took the descent okay not taking massive risks from what I could see. Uh, but the latter, the last two thirds of this TT, he just destroyed it. Uh, he's really, he's heavy uh, relative to the other riders. I think he hit 106 Ks an hour on the descent. And yeah, you said, I think Benji, you were messaging me that he, and I said it the other day, he visibly looks so, so fast. It was mainly noticeable also in the descent already because he seemed to, have a better idea of when to pedal and when not to pedal, and he tried to pedal as much as possible. It was really noticeable on the flat section after the descent, 
And we said earlier, Dennis wrote that at a less ideal wind, and he had the issue that he didn't dare to use his time trials there. I don't know what the English word for that is. So if you know... So TT, TT extensions or, or or triathlon. People were calling it triathlon bars on the the, uh, the broadcast, but we're not going to use that. They're, they're TT extensions. Okay, TT extensions it is. And Dennis didn't really use them that much on that flat, flat section because the wind was so hard that he was being thrown to the left of the side of the road all the time. But the thing that people on Twitter and everywhere seem to misunderstand a bit is, well, you've got a disc wheel on your back wheel, but the real danger is your front wheel, actually, because if you've got a disc wheel on your back wheel, you are sitting with your full weight on that back wheel. If you're like a 60k guy, that's going to be less of an advantage, but you actually don't have too much trouble with the wind on your disc wheel at the back wheel because you can control that well by literally having your weight on it. The real danger is your front wheel. And that's the first thing that Sagan even said when his race was done. They asked him, why did you choose a disc wheel? And is that a danger? And he said it that the back wheel is actually not that much of a problem. And I think a track cyclist, Bigham on Twitter, was actually explaining the same thing and explained the physics surrounding it. So if you want to check it out, definitely do so. Is that Dan Bigham, the uh, the TT specialist guy who works at the Danish Pursuit team? Yeah, if that's yes. him, you should definitely go and check him out on Twitter. And I know because I had a couple of riders or a couple of riders messaging me something similar afterwards, saying, "Wish we'd used a shallower front wheel," but I don't think they brought them. Uh, like they wanted a one. One even wanted a twenty, like a twenty-five millimeter front wheel. Because uh, he went at a pretty bad time when the crosswind was maybe too strong, and it seemed to be a fine line, right? When Dennis went, by the way, we should, I should probably read out the uh, read out the results uh, in full. Obviously, Ghana taking the stage, but he was first. Juan Almeida for quick step second, twenty two seconds behind Ghana. Mikhail Bjerg same time as Almeida, but seems to be third. He was third for some reason. Thomas fourth, Geraint Thomas, another magic time trial from him, 23 seconds back. Tobias Foss, Fionbo Visma, 31 seconds back in fifth. Josef Czerny for CCC, Czech rider, 36 seconds back. Matteo Sobrero for NTT cycling, 40 seconds back in seventh. Craddock, or should we call him Craddock? I think Katie <laughs> said that, DM me that. For EF Pro Cycling with the, uh, the, the Duck TT helmet, 41 seconds back. Miles Scottson for FDJ, the Australian ninth, 42 back. And Brandl, the Austrian ITT national champ for ISU, 10th. Um, don't, I'm not going to be mad if people say, who are the people from 5th to 10th? Or not who are they, but I, how are they in the top 10 uh, in this ITT? And... I gotta agree with you. That's it's a, a very surprising list of names. Like Sobrero, for example, for NTT, I'm not really that familiar with him. Like he lost his decent time trialist, but he lost a, a minute no sorry, fifty seconds to Eduardo Athini in the national championships ITT, the Italian one. So how is he then beating over fifteen Ks? Athene by 50 seconds. And I think the answer is 
a lot of the riders that set these surprising times went at the ideal time. Uh, and they're also probably handy TT riders as well. So it's a combination of those things. I also think Bjerg, if I had to trust someone to optimize their setup in a way to fit this kind of weird course with a bit of technicality with the monster descents, etc., probably be him. Pleased to see him having a better day today than the world champs coming third on the stage today. Uh, but yeah, is Almeida coming second, Benji? I think you were hyping him up on the preview pod. How big a surprise is that? And he was in the hot seat for a long time, by the way, um, for almost an hour, I thought, or more. A man that came second in Giro dell'Emilia behind Vlasov earlier this year, he can climb. Is Does this change your perspective on how well he can go on GC at this uh, Giro, or did he just go at like an, a really favourable time? I think that he went at a favourable time, but he's also not really... The person that I could be like, wow, is he in the top 10 of a time trial? He actually has a history of time trial. We said it in the preview, but not at this level, of course. In 2015, he started off, and I think on the juniors race in the NC in Portugal, if I recall correctly, he got second. He podiumed there quite well. And the year after that, he ended up winning that race. So he's got a history in time trial. He was meant to be a time trialer before he actually found out he can climb as well. And I think in 2017 or so, he put him to U23 Portuguese NC, but he's never done it in a race that is of this stature. He was doing really well in the time trial of the Giro U23 as well in 2018. So consistently growing in time trial, but ever since 2018, I don't know if he's done that amazing time trials. I think a top five here and there for Larry H. Miller Tour of Utah prologue. But in general, this is different. This is a whole new level. And I think that is also additionally because of the weather conditions changing so violently throughout this time trial, throughout this, yeah, it's not a prologue, it's a time trial. But all in all, in general, I didn't have Almeida that far down in my GC hopes either. I think he was a top 10 candidate. I think with some luck, he can end up on the fifth position, but not really aiming a podium or or, or fourth spot or something. There's too many people up there that I still expect to be better climbers in the last week, but Almeida has shown all year that he's pretty amazing. And i got to be honest, looking at tomorrow's profile, I think he could take the Magliarosa tomorrow night, but let's go into that after the uh, whole TT review here. Yeah, so for the other contenders for the stage win, I guess you could maybe count Thomas in that. He was kind of fifth or sixth, fifth to seventh favorite I saw. Uh, but yeah, fantastic result from Thomas, the first of the GC men in fourth. Uh, 23 seconds behind Filippo Ganna, who, as we said, was absolutely flying, and Ganna going into the Mavia Rosa for tomorrow. For the other stage contenders, Dennis, and uh, yeah, Dennis went, I think, just before Ganna, but the wind was so, so strong for him. You could see, like, the barriers shaking in the straight section, and Dennis couldn't get in the extensions for a significant part of the like flat straight. It was very, you, you rarely ever see this, a rider on perfectly flat road um, and a straight in the, not in the extensions because he was just having that much difficulty controlling the bike. You could see it throwing the bike from left to right. And as well, Dennis isn't actually that big a guy either. Like Ganner is significantly bigger than Dennis. So I, I do think the wind was not as violently crosswind for Ganner, but still it's, Ganna did have a bit of an advantage being heavier than Dennis. 
and yeah, that obviously cost Dennis because he was 48 seconds back in 15th uh, behind Ghana. Obviously, you'd expect, you know, you'd expect Dennis to be beating the likes of Tobias Foss and, uh, yeah, Matteo Sobrero in an ordinary, typical time trial uh, if the wind was equal for everybody. The biggest result, I think the biggest surprise today, I'm not particularly surprised by Thomas. I think he did a fantastic TT. I think he's on fantastic legs um, and probably had great wind as well, is Simon Yates, only 26 seconds behind Thomas. Um, yeah, I think he did did a really good TT today. And I've just missed, I've missed one of the other stage contenders, um, Victor Campanats. He came a minute and seven back. He was one of the only riders, one of the two riders that I saw that crashed today. What caused his crash, Benji? I know he said that it was slippery, but I saw no one else crashed in that corner. Others had issues in the second hairpin. It was in the first hairpin. Like, what? Run me through how that crash happened. It looked like his apex was a bit off towards that. And I, f- I don't think it was oversteering or anything. I think that in general, it his back wheel just just slipped away and yeah i don't have any clear thoughts on why it happened he said before the race that the time trial is not dangerous unless the riders make it dangerous but after he crashed he seemed to have a slightly bit of a different opinion about it so maybe that's just because he crashed that he changed his opinion but yeah i feel like it was in general quite a a dangerous parkour at the start and it looked like it was slippery he said before the stage started he has to take that he was going to take the most risks in those corners because there's literally no possible way that he's going to gain time on Ghana in the the last half of this TT. Um, he, so he has to try and gain time, I guess, on the climb and in the technical sections. Um, but, yeah, I didn't think his corner was that outrageous. I just think, yeah, his, his tyres went away. He said there was oil and stuff on the, on the road. If that was true... Maybe he was unlucky because he was one of the first riders to hit that particular line. Um, I know it was slippery and maybe the later riders that had been sort of removed by all the riders going across it, but no one really else had any trouble in that first hairpin. Multiple riders did, though, in the second hairpin, have a little few twitchy moments. I think Dowsett, Simon Yates, I saw them, even Filippo Ganna, I think maybe went around one of the corners, a little bit of a strange line, and then he re- sort of corrected and uh, maybe lost like half a second there, probably cost him the quickest time. But yeah, rough for Campanaz. He had that bungled bike change, I think, in the Giro time trial last year. He crashed in Yorkshire. Um, he's crashed a few time trials, and yeah, it's it's hard. He's obviously having to push it through the max in these corners because the watts just... Don't seem to be there. And it's rough for him because that's going to, I guess, when you focus on aero so much, it's going to make it hard to transition if he needs to um, to more of a road captain guy like you see Tony Martin doing. Um, but, yeah, that was Campanaz. The uh, Now let's get to the GC men. And this was where there's probably more interesting action that happened as well. This is the times of the GC men, and we'll let you guess, or you, you it won't take you very long to guess what, when they went. Grant Thomas, say, on zero seconds. Simon Yates, 26 seconds back on him. This is from the tweet of Amita Pierali, by the way. you got to follow, listen, 
not sponsored by any of these people, but I follow like three people on Twitter and these are the people for information. Amita Pioreli, uh, he's a Finnish guy, I think, or Icelandic, I apologise. I think he's Finnish, um, who does all the Waspahila stuff. La Flamme Rouge, obviously, and Fausto Copy, Mihai Kazuku. I follow those three. Uh, but yeah, this is from Amato Pirelli. Vlasov, 57 seconds behind Thomas. Kelderman, a minute and five behind Thomas. Nibali, a minute and six behind. Kreuzweig, 121 back. Fulsang, a minute and 24 behind Thomas. And Micah, one minute 37 back. So the time trial started with that climbing section and that is basically in the northeast area that you go towards. The descent is in that same direction and afterwards you change direction more to the north. And the main difference seems to have been made on the descent section because that is where the riders that are first in general have the best times. While if we look at the best times of the last few kilometers, you've got, well, Gunn obviously still up there, but like Tobias Foss, second best time on that descent. And that is where that man has made his difference because his section on the flat was a bit worse. And because of that, he moved back on the general ranking of the stage. So it's clear that that section was the real damage because I think Nibali and Kelderman came down with a 27 second gap already or like something along that lines in that descent itself. And after that descent, you had 58 seconds, one minute already as a gap. And that gap didn't really expand too much for these riders. The likes of Kelderman and Nibali lost another six seconds on Ghana on the flat part compared to the 57 seconds they lost at the second intermediate. So it seems like the real damage happened on on that descent, which is what you would not expect with the likes of Nibali and Kelderman. So yeah, in general, it's it's really, really sad for these riders that they are starting late. I'm going to name the riders that actually started late. You probably guessed it already from what Lantern said, but McNulty, Kelderman, Nibali, Kreiswag, Fulsing, and Micah, those are the likes that finished quite late. Flosov somewhere in between, so his time was not bad, but also not great. So he was a, a bit of an average uh, duck on this one, even though he's not in EF. McNulty with the best time of those late starters, and looking at it, if he started earlier, then I genuinely would have put him in potentially getting a top 10 here, which is quite a great result by the lad. And Calderman Nibali, very similar results. Kreisweg with a bit of a disappointment compared to Nibali and Calderman because I would put him more on that area of, of time trial. He started in the same period of time. So slightly disappointing for me. And Fulsang really, yeah, he uh, did worse than Kreisweg, but also not horrendous, I guess, but still not a good time trial. There's no way that Alexander Vlasov is a better time trial rider across this sort of parkour than all of Kelderman, Nibali, Kreuzweig and Fulsang. Maybe Nibali, but if he was not taking too many risks on the descent, yeah, but yeah, I don't, I don't even think that. Um, like, Vlasov, I don't think is that great a TT rider. I think him losing 57 seconds to a minute on Thomas, I would have expected, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be that surprised. Um if you told me that before the race started. But full thing, a minute 24, nah, that's that's such a big gap. This isn't like a, how long is this course? It's 15 kilometers. That's crazy um, to be losing that much time across that course, particularly after it, with a bit of a climb in there as well. So their teams cost them because they didn't 
put them in the right time slots. And if you're not smart enough to make the decisions yourself, then just go whenever Ineos have said Thomas was going. Now, maybe they weren't able to figure that out. But, yeah, it's just surprising to me that they all went really late and we had these weather forecasts and the weather was true to the forecasts and they went when there was lower crosswind, sort of cross tailwind, and they paid for it with a big gap. And this, these are they're real gaps. I thought there was going to be like 15 to 25 seconds maybe to full sang from Thomas and then it, it sort of dripped down in five-second increments to there and then maybe Vlasov would be the last about 50 seconds back. But these are actually significant gaps uh, already in the sh- one of the shortest I think this is the shortest TT of the three TTs. And I thought Thomas was going to be taking today easy, Benji, in those corners. And he probably was taking it relatively easy, not taking massive risks. Um, but, yeah, this is, these are real gaps. And Simon Yates comes out the winner as well. Probably he's got the best TT result of the, the climby guys on GC. And hopefully this makes it more interesting now, these big gaps, um, having you know, Vlasov and Fulsang losing so much time and then other the other two T's, two TTs coming up, would you be changing your strategy if you were the other GC guys already, Benji? Like, what would you be... Surely they've got to be more aggressive from the get-go, um, even maybe on Etna trying something. Thomas has that big advantage now, and I think that some people are going to change their mind, but it's also very early in this Grand Tour, and the likes of a Nibali and a Kreisbank are looking to strike on week three, that is for sure... But maybe in regards to Kreisweg, I think Jumbo could definitely try and play out Foss because I think that he won't lose time on Edna. And Tobias Foss, winner of Lavanier last year, I think it was Polony that he was good in this year. So that is something at least. And I think fifth on the last stage of Hungary. So he's a climber and I believe that he can stay up there and genuinely could could be up there in the top 10 of GC after Etna. That is a bit of a, a bold prediction maybe, but I kind of have my trust in that. He doesn't accidentally win Lavanier the year before, even though the competition was worse than all the years before regarding Avenir. But I do think that we got to keep in mind Almeida more and more. And he showed today that despite that luck with the weather that he's up there, and I said it at the start of it, he's a bit of a dark horse for top five for me. And I don't think he's going to beat Vlazov for a wide, but if the differences in time trials somehow stay like this and in the next two time trials Almeida takes another minute on Vlazov, then Vlazov might need to start getting worried, to be honest. Yeah, I think this cements my view that Astana are going to have to be very, very aggress- aggressive. This reminds me a lot of uh, Giro 2015 already when you had Contador who was better than Landa and Aru in the time trials and better them on the better than them on the climbs as well, to be honest. But um they had to leverage Aru and Landa against Contador and they only really did on stage twenty properly, I think, to Sestriere. And they did gain time on Contador then, but he had too much time in hand at that point. And I think Astana have to try and use Full Sang and Vlasov in that way. You know, I would be trying to get same with Mitchelton as well, to be honest. I know uh I think Jack Hag's probably lost a fair bit of time too today. He's like a minute and 42 back. So try and send them in a break. Sneak them in a breakaway. Um, 
Ineos will probably chase it back, has to chase it back, but I guess that's a good thing if you're trying to tire out Ineos and at least you're being proactive and maybe they don't chase. Um, and especially what maybe in the big mountain stages, they're not going to be able to because <laughs> they're so hard and they don't really have a very strong climbing team, Ineos, all around. And it's not going to be Thomas chasing all stage. So, yeah, I'd be trying to play those second favourites and Foss, put Foss in that as well. Fifth in that Hungary stage. I think Valter won that. I don't think we mentioned Valter enough on the preview show, the Hungarian climber. He, the CCC, he's very strong. But, yeah, it's this is the Giro, though. These sort of gaps, not insurmountable. Uh, if Stelvio stage goes ahead, a minute gap can be overcome very, very quickly. You know, Nibali, if that Stelvio descent is wet, Nibali could put 50 seconds into Thomas on that descent. Um, so, yeah, it's hopefully it makes the race more interesting. It certainly will put a lot of pressure on Ineos early to, I guess, protect that Malia Rosa, uh, presuming that Thomas will be in it after the Etna stage if Almeida and Foss get dropped, but maybe he won't be. Um, but yeah, what's going to happen tomorrow, Benji? We've got a pretty interesting stage, actually, from Alcamo to Agrigento. 149Ks, very short. Uh, not that much climbing, to be honest. Just a, a few, like four climbs of four four kilometers long and 4%, three kilometers at 4.5% in the first 46Ks. And there's the intermediate sprint at the top of the fourth climb, the Partana. 3K is at 4.1%. That'll be interesting, actually, to see whether a break goes, the whether Sagan and Damar and co. will be competing for that and what form Sagan is in and whether he's going to be trying to do a rinse and repeat of the Bennett green jersey drama. And then it's pretty flat, a few rollers. Another second intermediate sprint where I think there's bonus seconds on offer, if I remember what Benji telling me that is the truth, and in the last uh, 11Ks. And then the final climb to Agrigento is 3.7K is at 5.2%. Category 4 climb will have Rick Zabel maybe trying to defend Benji, his KOM jersey. <laughs> jersey. Because uh, we forgot to mention, by the way, sorry, Rick Zabel, the uh, German sprinter on Israel's Startup Nation, is in the KOM jersey because he, he used a – I mean, hats off to him, 5,000 IQ. He used a road bike on this course – uh, and just sprinted up the first climb where there was the KOM points and got the quickest time, like half a second ahead of Sagan. Benji, if Sagan was on a road bike, he would be in the KOM jersey. So, um, <laughs> it's so true. It's so I know, true. I don't know if that was his – because Sagan, the minute a gust of wind hit him, he like stopped riding and he was like, this, he was like, this is way too dangerous. But anyway, I'm off topic. Agrigento tomorrow. I can't remember who he said in the preview. I, I said Michael Matthews. Um, I don't think it's that hard. 3.7Ks at 5.2%. If you can get over the Poggio, you can get over this. So I don't know why some people were saying it's too hard for him. Diego Ulusi on a stage like this, got to be mentioned too, short stage. But Benji, can Almeida take the pink jersey tomorrow? Like what does he have to do to take pink? Um, Because he's, what is he, a second ahead of Thomas. If he's just in the bunch, does he take pink? It's more difficult than you would expect because you've got Ghana who is not horrendous at climbing. So on paper, he should be able to hang on quite well. But then again, if an Almeida launches an attack, then it's going to be tougher again to try and follow. So he needs to find a way to gain the 22 seconds back. And 
On paper, I believe that's possible because if he can gain 12 seconds and win the stage, then he has it. But the issue is going to be that when he attacks, so many people will follow his wheel that the gaps between him and Ghana might just be like a one second gap here, one second gap there. I don't think there's going to be a huge gap that gives it so easily to an Almeida. But Almeida's also not my favorite for the stage. He's in my top five list. I've got a new scale thing I do on, on Twitter these days, so definitely check it out. I want to plug it for a second. Um, and I gave three pizza slices to uh, to Matthews. I gave two pizza slices to Ulysses and Clark for the stage. And one pizza slice to Vendrame and Almeida. So Matthews is my favorite. Ulysses and Clark to fight it out with him. And potentially as dark horses, Vendrame and Almeida on the stage. Because Vendrame is pretty good at these... Uh, at these finishes, but we also know that Clark is good at them from Amstel and so forth. In the past, Ulisi can never disappoint on this kind of finish. But Almeida was second, I think, if I recall correctly, on that stage in uh, Burgos, the first stage where he was working for Avonapol, but just ended up second behind Grosschartner on that stage. Was also kind of an uphill finish, but was also a technical finish, so maybe that played a role into it, but I still put Almeida in my top five list because of that. I believe it's possible, Pink Jersey, but he's got to find a way to create a gap in the peloton for that to happen, with Ghana being on the uh, unfortunate side of things. Do you expect the likes of a Grain Thomas risking something to try and take the stage tomorrow? Because on paper, he does have a finish on a climb, but is this maybe a bit too punchy considering the people like Magis, Ulysses, and Clark will probably not be dropped yet? I don't really like Thomas for this. I mean, I know he didn't have great form at the Dauphiné, but stage one had a similar finish at Dauphiné. Um, like, oh, I can't remember, three and a half Ks, 4%, maybe not as steep. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say what Thomas will do. Maybe he'll just be defending the jersey, trying to stay out of trouble. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, he's done okay in hard, slightly harder climbs and finales than this. But no, I'm not expecting him to be contesting the stage win. Could Ghana? What about Filippo Ghana? <laughs> is he is he strong enough? Or yeah, I mean, Ineos Domestiques when they got a GC leader, they don't win stages, so not even worth really considering that. Um, but yeah, I like Matthews for tomorrow. I think he's he got a better punch than Diego Ulissi. I think he's just a better rider than Ulissi. And I guess we're missing one man, the man who's being paid a lot of money to be here, Peter Sagan. He's for us not to mention him on a climb like this, if this was 2012, I would be like, no one even else bother turning up because Sagan is going to win this stage um, tomorrow. But he, it ain't 2012, FYI, and I'm not sure he's in, even after the Tour de France where he maybe didn't come in with the best legs and he's you sort of been trained up through that, I'm not sure he's still at his best ever level or near his normal level. It's still particularly on the climbs. I still think he's quicker than Matthews on the flat sprints. Um, but, yeah, it looks like Ghana will keep the Malia Rosa after tomorrow's stage. I agree that Almeida, I expect him to be up there. Um, if Daryl Impey was here, I'd really like him for this sort of stage too, but he's not. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I think people said we picked Matthews too much for stages in the preview show, but then again, if the course really suits him, then <laughs> you have to say who you think the favourite will probably be. Uh, but yeah, that's the Giro d'Italia so far. Already on day one, a lot of GC action. Uh, not not surprising who won the stage. 
We also should mention that uh, Miguel Angel Lopez crashed quite badly, actually, on this stage. I don't think we mentioned that when he was coming into the second intermediate and he like had one hand on the extensions, one hand on the bars, hit a pothole and it threw his bike to the right. And Astana said they've taken him to hospital for observation but haven't really said his condition. He obviously was on the ground for quite a while, so I hope he's okay. He obviously had a crash in the first stage of the Tour de France and now crashing again on the first stage of the Giro. Not great to see. There are a lot of bumps, etc. on this course. Um, but yeah, best wishes to Miguel Angel Lopez. And it's a shame for Astana. They're missing a guy who I thought was going to win maybe a stage in this year's Euro or would have been very helpful in the mountains. Another rider that's not going to make it to the start tomorrow is Luca Covili because he was out of time limit today. And it's confirmed from the official results that he is actually out of time limit, which is unfortunate because he had a mechanical and the organization didn't really care about that detail. So they decided to leave him out anyway. So I guess Bardiani starting with a rider less tomorrow morning feels a bit harsh to me personally, but then again, a time limit is there for being used, even if mechanicals happen and so forth. Sometimes the organizations say, let's let's pop him back in and let's, let's not really care about the fact that he was out of time due to that mechanical or due to a crash. But yeah, it's a bit harsh, but it reminds me of that Japanese rider last year, Nishimura, who was also OTLing on the first prologue in Bologna. So it seems to be a regular thing in the Giro that on the first time trial, we've got a rider out because he's out of the time limit, which is always quite surprising. But I think that's roughly about it for the Giro here. That was our Giro Stage 1 wrap-up. Thanks again for Lecole supporting our podcast for the Giro. Now onto the Bink Bank Tour, Stage 5, or even it was the fourth stage, but we're still calling it Stage 5, the Flandrian stage, like a proper Flandrian classic in the middle of a stage race, and multiple repetitions of the uh van and we've got Matthew van der Poel behind on GC, trying to make up time on GC. What else have you got? Mads Pedersen in the leader's jersey. Oliver Narsen with uh, a broken knee that's magically fixed itself in like two days. Um, 188k stage, multiple reps of the <laughs> of the Moor, Bosberg, and the Denderudberg. That's not a real word. And yeah, just loads of punchy climbs and cobble climbs into finishing in Herardsberg and with, I think, like, they finish halfway or no, more like three-quarters of the way up uh, the Moor. But a lot of stuff was riding on the line today. Obviously, me and Benji had kudos on the line between each other for who was going to come higher up on GC. I think it was between Sonokar Andersen, Benji's favourite rider, and Mads Pedersen, two Danish riders on Sunweb and Trek, respectively. You had Pedersen, obviously, in the leader's jersey, just after the ITT, he was seven seconds ahead of Kranderson and 13 seconds ahead of Kung. Vanderpool was 17 seconds back on Pedersen and 10 seconds back on Soren Kranderson. And the Quickstep boys, Lampart was 24 back on Pedersen and Seneschal 31 back. So that was how the stage was set up. I think live coverage started like uh, 75Ks into this stage and already a pretty strong breakaway had formed and action was kicking off Benji. Yes, and we had a breakaway that was pretty large with a satellite rider up front for Mathieu van der Poel, that is the Bond. And later on, we would find out that he was going to be quite useful in uh, in the race itself because 
they had a plan at Alps and Phoenix, and I was not expecting it that early. I think we saw the main action happening on the second time we crossed the uh, Capelmur with attacks in the peloton already with about a good 80 kilometers to go. So that's early to start some kind of movement from the peloton. And I think we saw three riders go clear at that point. That was the likes of Mathieu van der Poel attacking from the peloton together with Seneschal and Cyril Lemoine. And up front, you had the breakaway, including the Bond and so forth. And that breakaway was not necessarily looking too bad, but I think the gap to the peloton in total was two-ish minutes, something like that, when that attack happened. But the attack of Mathieu van der Poel and Seneschal was so strong that in the peloton, they were too late to react. And Mats Pedersen had to put his Trek boys at the front to try and close down that gap, and it became some kind of chase between that group and the Vanderpool group and the Vanderpool group and the front because in the front of the race you would obviously see Dries de Bont not really pacing anymore because his teammate Vanderpool was coming and the rest was kind of getting angry at him and started being like come on man come on ride with us even though like he has a good point to not ride at that moment we've got other riders towards the end of the stage that potentially should have ridden a bit more but I think Lantern has a lot to say about that later on but Vanderpool, yeah, he was really, really strong. And I think on the Bosberg after the Capelmur, we saw Lemoine drop because both of Vanderpool and Seneschal just kept on pedaling hard and the gap to the peloton kept on rising and rising. I think it was around, yeah, that was half a minute, but the gap to the front of the race was, I think, a minute between the front of the race and Vanderpool at that point. But by the time they hit the next Capelmur, that group was already caught and... Vanderpool was up front with his teammate Dries de Bond. And did you expect Vanderpool to make a move so early, considering we were expecting him to maybe wait until the last Cup Palmer, considering he has that punch that could drop the likes of uh, Peterson, but maybe not Sudokro Anderson in the form he had today? Well, his hand was kind of forced because he was 17 seconds behind Peterson. So if he just waited for it to come down to a final sprint up the moor, like sure, he might put five seconds, eight seconds into Pedersen. I can't remember if there were bonus seconds on the line or not. Probably were. But even still, that's a tall order to be putting that much time into Pedersen. Maybe you could probably do it on a good day, but I guess that was some of the motivation behind Van der Poel going early. I think, I don't know, I'm in two minds. Obviously, it worked out well for him in the end, um, but going early like that in a full... Tour of Flanders, I'm not, I'm not sure it's the best option. So we'll see if he sort of adopts a similar strategy in the, in the proper classics and particularly Roubaix and, and Flanders because like Van der Poel, obviously like incredible, probably top two classics rider in the world uh, or definitely the Cobble classics, but not like Cancellara 2010 to 2012 level either. Um, where you can just literally do whatever you want and win every race. So, yeah, it's one to watch. Um, I think I'm not sure how strong the field was today. Pretty strong. It had most of the cobbled guys, except for obviously Wat Van Aert, who, uh, if he was in the chase, maybe things would have happened a little bit differently. But yeah, I, I hope Van der Poel never changes because, like Evenepoel, Attacking early like that, it makes the race so much more exciting than just if they'd all ridden together, uh, which Trek would have been very happy about, and then coming into a final sprint 
up to Kapunmur. So, which, yeah, that was never going to happen. So I'm really glad Mathieu van der Poel is the way he is. But, yeah, he got to that breakaway. Seneschal had been on his wheel following him. I thought Seneschal was looking pretty good. Seneschal even looked stronger than van der Poel on the initial climbs. Uh, but then, obviously, that wasn't the case <laughs> later on. Van der Poel got to the break with Therese de Bont. De Bont kind of pulled for a little bit. And then, yeah, Van der Poel just started driving that breakaway really hard on his own, trying to open up a gap to the, the chase, which was mainly Trek still pacing. Um, yeah, Trek pacing, obviously trying to bring that back. And it's kind of crazy how Van der Poel with Seneschal can close such a big gap on their own. And Trek pacing with a full team is... Never got it under a minute, really, uh, except until the dying embers of this stage. And then it went back out again again. So, yeah, it's, it goes to show how strong Seneschal and Van der Poel were. Uh, and then I'm not sure when it was exactly, Benji. I think it was just over 50Ks to go, maybe a little bit more. Seneschal or Van der Poel had been driving that break so hard. It was like in Yorkshire World Champs before it cracked. He, on every climb, when he he was just driving it to the max and like I'm not sure there's an Ineos rider in the break might have been worth was getting like they were getting yo-yoed every little climb they went up and I think he then went clear with maybe just Seneschal uh and the Bont and then he dropped all the others except Seneschal and then on the Moor I think it was it was over 50k's to go Van der Poel said bye-bye to everybody and went clear solo and yeah, what were you thinking at that point, Benji? Were you did your eyes? How many TVs you got? Because did the Giro then take a back seat when we you were on Van der Poel solo watch? I thought he was just clear and the race was over. To be honest, <laughs> I didn't expect <laughs> something to come from the back because we saw that Trek was being left alone to do the job, and we didn't see the likes of Sunweb working at that point. We didn't see the likes of I don't know, Artezeraides working for Lovanasen, Bahrain working for Garcia Cortina. Nothing of that. Even Krupama was not working at that point for Stefan Kung. So it took quite a while, I think, until... Well, he was he was kind of keeping the same gap from that point onwards, I had the feeling. And that gap was around a minute, a minute 20, something like that, on the peloton. And Seneschal dropped, like you said, but he just collapsed at that point. He was unable to keep the gap to find the pull on around 20 seconds and... Lost more time and more time. I think on the Dendrodberg was where he basically, well, dropped from 20 seconds behind to like 50 seconds behind. So clearly not in a good moment at that point. And Vanderpool pretty much broke him. But the gap from Vanderpool to the peloton, it stayed somewhat the same. It was really only changing the moment we saw attacks on the next mur because that is where a few riders went off and a bit of a group was formed. And that included the likes of Garcia Cortina, the likes of Oliver Nassen, Søren Kro Andersen, Mats Peterson was there still as well. And I was not expecting them to close down the gap to Mathieu van der Poel. But on that mur, we saw the gap drop from like a minute 20 to a minute. So if you're on a minute on van der Poel and you've already closed down 20 seconds on one mur, then it can still do some damage in the next two kilometers. And that surely was the case. Who of the... Uh, front riders in that group were in your eyes the strongest and did any of them drop in the coming cobble sections? Bahrain McLaren, they did have Garcia Cortina there who'd kind of been hampering the Pedersen chase or maybe did as well later. 
Um, Pedersen obviously didn't make that cut. And I think Sonny Cobrelli at some point bridged across to them, either bridged across to them or like he was just a little bit behind, like three seconds behind on that climb and then finally made it his way across to that group. I thought Cranderson was the strongest of those guys, but he's not he's not stronger alone than Vanderpool. That's the thing. You this reminded me so much of when Alaphilippe went clear in at Imola, where on that descent, probably after that climb, which was the true equalizer, like none of them were really that much stronger than Alaphilippe on their own. Well, they certainly weren't, and they had to work collectively. And the same was the case here, where Van der Poel on the flat is probably worth like two of these riders working together. So they need to bring back a gap of a minute across 30Ks or whatever to be working together as a proper group of four or five. I think it was it was mainly four at the end with Colbrelli, Nyson, Cranison and Stefan Kung. And they're good names there to have. Like if, you, if you're in a breakaway with Kung trying to chase someone down, you'd be like, this is the man I want to have here, uh, third in world champs individual time trial at uh, at MLR. So, yeah, I thought Cranison was the strongest, but I didn't – yeah, or, or am I missing something, Benji? Do you think – how strong was Narsen? Do you think he was injured or um, – because he wasn't pulling that much. Um, was he injured or just saving himself? I think he was just saving himself. I don't think the injury was as damaging as it looked on the uh, day that he actually got injured because, let's be honest, if he can't use his leg on – on stage one after that crash, then it's crazy how he's riding today. So I think that might just have been a precaution that he wasn't pedaling in stage one, maybe, or something alike to make sure that what injury he had was not getting worse. And yeah, the day after he was pedaling quite normal in the peloton as well. And I think on the rest day, well, actually that was the day after, but on the rest day itself, he went for three hour training. So I did not expect him to have that worse of an injury after seeing that training that happened. Now, regarding today, he was the strongest rider next to Sudden Kronders, and I'd say stronger because he maybe had the ability to save himself towards the end more, causing him to be stronger in the last two kilometers compared to a certain Kronderson. But yeah, did you did you have the feeling that they were going to close down the match of Vanderbilt gap or did you expect it to uh to be a clear victory from Vanderpool at that point. Well, what they did was they'd close down 10 seconds. So they'd go from like, they brought it down to like 25, 30 seconds. And I think the main chase was Patterson and it was Gar- Garcia Cortina behind, I think, and Seneschal was at like 48, 53 seconds hovering around there. And the, the main, ch- the closest chase group of the four, they bring back 10 seconds into Vanderpool and I think they had like 30 seconds with oh, 8Ks to close down. And then they kind of look at each other for 500 meters or a few ro- rotations where Nyson was trying to not do any work as much as possible. Uh, he's obviously wasn't going for GC, just going for stage win. And Kung eventually was getting fed up with it and started pushing Nyson through and then Narsen was refusing and it was slowing everything down. They were leaning on Kranzen a lot because he had the most to lose by Van der Poel going up the road. Van der Poel, by the way, mopping up the golden kilometre nine seconds, I think, all nine of the seconds. And then oh, I can't remember who 
obviously there were some left on the road then for the, the group behind where the Kranz and took all the other ones. But, yeah, it wasn't the most cohesive chase the whole time. And every time they started looking at each other, that gap would hover. It hovered at like 18 seconds, 15 seconds for a fair while. And it was like 15 seconds with 3Ks to go. And at that point, I didn't think they were going to bring him back. I didn't think it was going to be close because, yeah, Narsen was refusing to work. And then it did get kind of close on the Moor, where obviously Van der Poel was getting pretty tired. Uh, and they did a much quicker Moor than Van der Poel did that group, particularly Narsen. But I'm glad he didn't win. I'm glad Van der Poel won. Uh, he deserved to win. He went clear on his own with 50Ks. He got across to that breakaway. Uh, which was obviously the plan for Alpes and Phoenix much earlier with like 80Ks to go. I don't know, before live coverage almost even started, he was bridging across to it. And he was clearly the strongest rider today overall. And Nyssen didn't deserve to win because the whole time I was thinking, Van der Poel is going to be so tired if you guys bring him back uh, in the last five kilometers. Yeah, sure, he probably might recover, but... Vanderpool, after being out on his own for like 75Ks or whatever, or just with one other rider for 80Ks, and one more repetition of the Moor, and Nyssen's been kind of sitting in for a while or just with another group, he'd still be able to back himself, I think, against Vanderpool in that climb if he if they bring him back really late. And they just scuppered themselves. And I think I kind of blame Oliver Nyssen. I think he... Like, what is the cost of really pulling in the last 30Ks on the flat when people are asking you to rotate for three seconds? Like, is it really is it really going to hamper your ability to recover and win that much if you just do one? It's not like when you're in a group of two, right? This is different to a video I'm making at the moment where uh, Savo Deli sits on Ivan Basso in, on a climb in stage 11 of the Giro 2005 and then pips him for the stage win. Completely different scenario where you've got a guy who's a way stronger climber and you're just trying to hang on um, and then maybe get the stage win and it's just two of you. On flatter sections with group of four, when you're trying to chase down the strongest rider in the race, I think your priority should just be pulling through because the other riders got pissed kind of justifiably and then they stopped working and then that's why, you know, those seconds all add up. Every time Kung looks around, at a second. And if that happens five times, that's five seconds. And Van der Poel beat Nyssen by four seconds today. So, yeah, that's I'm glad he lost. Do you think I'm being too harsh on him, Benji? And maybe we'd be praising him as a genius if they had actually just caught Van der Poel in time? I would have sat up as well, but later. And I think that's where the mistake lies. I feel like he was the rider up front that has the ability of sitting down more because... Obviously, Kung and Søren Kralanderson had to go for GC. Now, I think the one thing that we're not factoring in yet is the fact that I felt like in the last four kilometers before the Muir happened, the last Muir at the finish line, I feel the road surface was extremely wet and it was quite descendy, the parkour. So I think in those corners, we saw the likes of Van der Poel's strike through it quite fast, and then we saw the second group just a bit later, and it was going slower, and Søren Kralanderson took weird-ass corners, Kung was taking weird corners, and it wasn't really because no one was chasing, it was because they were looking a bit scared, and 
I think that also played into the fact that maybe Nelson sat up too early, not considering that this kind of terrain was coming, because if the terrain stayed similar, they would have caught Vanderpool. But on the other end, I agree with you. It's it's uh, a mistake to sit up this early and therefore kind of ruin the chase. He did not necessarily slow it down, like you said, I would say, because he wasn't at the front and was like, oh, I'm not pedaling, guys. He just stayed at the back and told the others to, to step in before him. And yeah, obviously that's going to reduce the factor of uh, possibility of catching up with Van der Poel. So I think that he miscalculated and he sat up too early, making that impossible to catch back Van der Poel. But as you say, I agree that if they got closer and they got to Van der Poel, then I think Nelson would have won the stage. And um, yeah, he didn't. And I mean, Sonny Cobrelli has exactly the same motivations and incentives just going for the stage and probably a similar similar kick and, and rider, I guess, similar enough to to Narsen compared to Kranderson and Kung who are going for the stage win and more of an more of an engine and you shouldn't be he shouldn't have been too worried about them in the finale either. And Codrelli was working with the other two, with the Dane and the and the Swiss rider. So yeah, I feel like if Narsen worked earlier, they bring Van der Poel back and they probably go past him on the moor. But yeah, as you said, Benji, I don't mind it if you're like, okay, it's a five-second gap. We can see him really close, and it's five seconds with like three k's to go. Then maybe skip a couple of turns uh, here or there, just to just to freshen up the legs before the final sprint up the moor. Rather than he he was when I say he wasn't pulling, it was for like I don't know thirty k's or something, uh, and only really pulled when they shouted at him. But a magnificent win for Matthew van der Poel. Another adding to the list. I mean, we take it for granted almost at this point. But I think that was his yeah, second World Tour win this season. He'd not really contested the sprints in Terreno and actually hasn't really been contesting sprints. And yeah, he won stage seven, which is another magic stage through Loreto and Terreno. And then winning stage five, the Bing Bang Tour. Wins the overall general classification, I think, eight seconds ahead of Kra Anderson. I feel so sorry for Kra Anderson, um, but I guess it's a bad day for him and a bad day for Benji. And, yeah, because Van der Poel obviously mopped up all those bonus seconds along the way as well. He so beat Peterson, it wasn't though, just so... a distance. Yeah, true. Beat Pedersen. Um, I'm not <laughs> So I guess, yeah, you win You win our wager that Pedersen would beat Soren Kra Anderson. Pedersen kind of got – he was trying to do so much work chasing back and eventually he realised, well, like he, he'd pull Ludvigsen, I think, would then pull or maybe another rider. And then Garcia Cortina, who is trying to do his best impression of a cobbled Marc Soler, would like half attack surge that group and they'd all look at him just a second in front of them and he'd just be looking back at them constantly and they're like, what are you doing? Like what? Are you, what are you? What are you trying to achieve here? We we got to bring back a minute and twenty five seconds on Vanderpol. Like, are you you're gonna you're gonna close that gap down on your own, Garcia Cortina, and um, yeah, he couldn't obviously because it just makes no sense what he was doing. But anyway, fantastic for Matthew Vanderpol. Apparently, he's doing Liège tomorrow, Benji. Which we're about to get into our preview, a brief preview of Liège. But yeah, what else from the Bing Bang Tour? You're the man on the ground. We haven't got your press accreditation yet, 
But um, yeah, any any other news from Big Bank or anything we're missing now that it's actually finished? Um, does the points classification matter? I think who won that? Is that a is that a really prestigious thing? Pedersen won that. Oh my god, with the same points. Yeah, <laughs> he won it with the same points as Jasper Philipson, which is um, yeah, I don't know what the uh, tiebreaker there was. So Miss Pedersen, that is um, well deserving after this Big Bang tour, I would definitely say. And when it comes to the team classification, if you also want to hear that, then it's Ups and Phoenix, who was riding really well, really well as a team, to be honest, in this uh, Bing Bang Tour. Maybe not in the leadouts for these sprints, but the likes of Arika, the likes of the Bonds, Johnny Vermeers, really helpful for Vanderpool, and I think that played a role today as well with that attack of Drizzt Bond earlier on. But I think that's roughly about it. And obviously, Ups and Phoenix is going to be strengthened, ridiculously strong classic squad next year when they have. Jesper Philipsen joining them then, which is, yeah, crazy. I don't know whether Tim Merlier, uh, I think he's still contracted there for next year. Yeah, for the next two years. So, yeah, really, really strong squad. Uh, I don't know who's going to be the main the main man in the sprints for them, but can't wait to see what they can do in the classics next year as a pro Conti team. Kind of like, I would say they're a top three classics team in the world, like the Cobble Classics. And like Brussels Cycling Classic and like Shell de Priest and things like that. And they're a pro Conti team. So if I was a team owner or like an investor in a team, that's the sort of team I would try and create, right? Because with a world tour team, you're obliged to send there's so many races you're obliged to send a team to. And it just wouldn't be profitable from a sponsorship perspective. Like Ineos this year were like Fuck that. We're not sending a team. I know it was because of COVID, but they didn't send a team to Britannia Classic. Um, and I'm sure they probably, after costs, etc., taking a team there. If your team's not good at that good at that sort of race, you're not really making any any money out of that sort of race or getting any exposure at all. Um, whereas having this one team hyper-focused on what it's good at and just selecting the best riders at that, which is Cobble Classics and Flat Classics and these Belgian Netherlands races. And I guess Van der Poel can do more than that, obviously. Um, see what he did at the Italian races. But, yeah, it's what I would do. I think it's way cheaper to have a Pro Conti license and a World Tour license, be cheaper to run the team, um, have more flexibility to do what you want. And, yeah, I'd say Alpes and Phoenix get more marketing and publicity, etc. even without Van der Poel, even with just Melier and Dries uh, de just about then, say, NTT and, well, I dare say, CCC at the moment. they got more wins than them as well. But yeah, that's a bit of a different tangent. On to the Liège preview, Benji. Matthew Van der Poel is racing tomorrow. Um, before I even get into the profile, do you think Van der Poel can back up tomorrow? and actually be contesting Liège, best on Liège. Today was a hard day, so let's not underestimate that solo, but when he's at the start line, Van der Poel is always a factor. And in general, I feel like LBL, well, I'm lying if I say this, but I think until they changed to parkour finishing Liège, the the parkour was written differently. People were always waiting until the last two hills. And I think last year we saw... Something totally opposite of that with early attacks with Shockman and so forth. So in general, it feels like LBL 2019 was a change in that because that parkour 
changed, and now we've got a flat finish in Liège since last year. And for me, that was a good change because it makes the race less predictable, but also it adds to the fact that people need to attack early on and can't wait until the last hill that went straight into the finish line, the one where then Martin fell into that corner. So unfortunate for him, but I do want to mention that every year when it's an LBL preview. Nonetheless, for the start list here, we've got quite a number of riders that I would name as having the possibility of being good here. We've got the Koenig Quickstep with Julian Alaphilippe, the most recent world champion. And he's got a solid team to support, to be honest. Bagioli, we've got Cavagna de Klerk, Devenheim's Jungles, and the lad we got to uh, we got to meet at the Flesh Wallon race last week, Mauri von Sevenans. Looking forward to see what he's going to do in these upcoming races. And you have anyone else in mind outside of Alaphilippe? I've got like Sharkman as a potential rider or Michael Woods being possibly good at this parkour. But we were missing a full sign because he's at the Giro, so previous winner is not here. Do you have someone of those names I just named in mind outside of Alaphilippe? Because I recall you were saying Alaphilippe out loud when I asked you uh, who was going to win Liège. I mean, yeah, Alaphilippe is my pick, but you got to mention Hirschi, the flesh on winner. Um, for Sunweb, he's on the start list. I think they got Tashman out there as well and a half-decent team supporting him. And, yeah, I think if it's a flat sprint, if it's sort of a reduced bunch sprint, if I had to pick someone to beat Alaphilippe, it would be someone like Mark Hirschi. And we saw that he was nearly able to do that on stage two of the Tour de France. And he looks to have even improved since then. Obviously, Chris Froome is at Liège, renowned one-day racer. Um, so maybe... Yeah, let's see what Froome can do tomorrow. Um, maybe a long-range attack. Um, maybe try and get a top 25 in his first top 25 in a one-day race. Uh, but no, I hope he's actually... It'll be interesting to see how it goes. Uh, he must be in okay form for them to be putting him on the start list. Obviously, their main man is Mikhail Kwiatkowski, who came... What was he? He was like a hair's breadth away from here for fourth, for third, rather, in Imola in the World Champs Road Race. And they got Sebastian Enau, who... Uh, he could do okay as well. Even Sosa there as well. Ethan Hater, I'd be interested to see how he goes. Um, I thought it was a real shame they didn't take him to the Giro instead of Swift. I wish they had because I just think Hater is – he doesn't get talked about really at all, um, I don't think, as like a talent. It, compared to like Pidcock and stuff, and I know he's not the same level as Pidcock, and Pidcock should be spoken about more than him, but he's really, really good, uh, Ethan Hater. He's only 22 and already – getting good results in the, these Italian races. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought it was a shame they didn't take him to, to Italy, to the Tour of Italy. But, yeah, I think it's Richie Port maybe. Um, they even got Mads Pedersen on the start list for Trek Segafredo. I'm not sure if that's that has to be correct. But, yeah, it looks to me like a Michael Woods or Julian Alphilippe or Mark Hirschi. I think Flesh and Liège, I, I haven't got the data to back this up. And maybe it's just a Valverde thing, but whoever comes like top five in flesh, it's the same people that come top five in Liège. It's pretty much exactly the same. Um, Dumala, I don't think he didn't look that good at flesh. He got dropped really early. I think he's pretty tired. Roglic, nah. Um, am I missing anyone, Benji? Do you see any outsiders here? I'm taking a quick look at UAE. We don't have Formula with the start here this year, so that's quite surprising. 
I would dare to put Rukoshta on this on the list for like a top ten because he always uh, surprises here. I've got a bit of a different feeling regarding Flash. I feel like Flash is always different than the likes of LBL. LBL feels like the GC riders have more more of an opportunity to show their heads, while with Flash that's very unlikely because we saw it with Pogacar. He was not really there at the end of the Murui. And today, well, with LBL, I, I think that we indeed need to look at um, the riders we already named. Maybe Betiol, if he can really surprise, because he can climb. Um, but whether his form can sustain that, I generally don't know. So for me, I would dare to... Um, yeah, Alaphilippe is so the favorite, but... I'm looking for someone else to try and see if he's got an opponent that is on that level, and the only person I could name is Hirschi. So it wouldn't surprise me if they're fighting against each other once again, but I am looking forward to see whether Shockman has improved his his form since the Tour de France, because he wasn't bad at the Tour de France, because, but he wasn't on the form that he was in last year's Ardennes season, because the Ardennes last year were amazing for him. I think he got Top three on this race as well. Yeah, third LBL. We had fifth on La Flèche and fifth on Amstel last year. So I was looking forward to him more than at the Tour de France in this part of the season. And I hope that he can make a good result here in fat World Championship. So yeah, I would put Shockman in in a top three position for this race as well. So who's your pick? Oh, I don't know. I, I think Pagacar is quite tired as well as Roglic out of the tour. I think Shakran's kind of improved a little bit. I think Woods at Flesh, uh, he looked went kind of early. I'm going with uh I'm going with Hirschi at Liège. I think I think he can win and beat beat Alaphilippe. Uh, I think Alaphilippe's on that that new painted S works that um the, the really trash paint job's gonna hold him back, cost him some watts. Um so yeah, I'm going with Hirschi. Tomorrow, I don't think. I mean, Alphalip's got a really strong team as well, which is pretty terrifying. So maybe I'm just trying to be contrarian for the sake of it. You know, Badioli, Cavagna, Tristevenens, Jungles, and Vansamon. That's so. That is so strong for Quick Step. Um, but then again, it's missing Fulsang to animate the race from far out, which tends towards the Hirschi Alphalip riders. I just think Hirschi can maybe get a jump on Alphalip. Um, and beat him in the sprint, maybe. I don't know. I, I think it'll be close. Alaphilippe will be, have been on the phone and talking to people and doing interviews and photo shoots and everything for the last seven days. That's probably why he couldn't do flesh after winning world championships. Now, maybe he thrives off that. Maybe it has tired him out. I'm not sure. It's 257K course. I think we forgot to review, sort of preview the profile. It doesn't change too much each year. Constant hills from Liège, goes to Baston, then comes back to Liège. Uh, more hills in the latter half of it. I think the main climb is 2.8 k's, 5.5% in the first half. Uh, Côte de la Roche on Ardennes, and about halfway they've got Côte de Saint-Saint-Roche, 1.1 k's at 9.5%, then constant climbs for the last half, the last 100 kilometres. Uh, ones you probably know are the Col de Rosier, 4.5 k's, 5.5%. And the Cote de la Redoute, 2Ks at 9%. Sometimes things can happen there. Uh, I think there could be, if anyone wants to go for a long ranger, maybe Adam Yates. Does Adam Yates try? He got a pretty good result last year 
Adam Yates is on the start list again because he tries something from far out. Um, and then Cote de Rocha for Caen. Probably not pronouncing that correctly. That's one of the main last climbs, although the profile's kind of jumbled. Um, but yeah, descent then finished. The descent is where, if you've seen when Jakob Fulsang's like back wheel kind of skipped a, a beat on that descent when he was clear last year. That's the descent, I think, into the finish from not making a mistake. I, I wish, I kind of wish they changed the order in the parkour a bit more from year to year. Uh, I feel like they do that a bit more in some of the cobble classics um, rather than, especially flesh. Like flesh needs a complete, a complete revitalization because, like, it's as boring sometimes as watching a, a Zwift race. Honestly, um, it pretty much is a Zwift race for <laughs> the punchers. And without someone animating it from afar, it's just Alaphilippe Valverde or in previous years and now he or she or Alaphilippe. But yeah. Liège, Benji, do you think it's an exciting race? I do feel like it's an exciting race, but the riders need to make it exciting. And I feel like LBL became exciting last year for me. And the years before that, it was sometimes less. We saw the likes of, I think, Iglinski and Kreuziger, and I think Nibli as well once, attack early on, and that made the race. So I hope that early attacks can do the same this year. If I had to place a winner on this race... I'm going to stick with what I did with Flesh Wallon, and I chose Van der Breggen there for the women's race. I will do that again today for LBL, but I'm going to pick Alaphilippe for this race because I feel like the first race after you win your World Championships, you want to try and strike in that jersey directly. So I think he's not going to have that shady curse everybody keeps talking about, and I think Alaphilippe's going to win Liège-Bastogne-Liège, and I won't name a dark horse because I don't feel like I have many on my list for this race. If it's dry, I'll give you a dark horse. I'll give you a really good one. Richie Port. He looked kind of good at flesh. He came eight. Like, it's not just a dark horse for the sake of dark horses. I actually think he could, he could go okay. Um, eight at flesh, eight, and he went a bit too early, I think, uh, on, on the murder to Hoy. I think he, he looked really strong, and I think tomorrow will suit him a little bit more with, more like with the longer climbs um yeah i think port could go okay obviously his results probably in liege are not um the best throughout his career he's got dnf dnf and 91st so yeah not the best but he's looks like a different man this year and his result in flesh was really really i thought really good and i think it'll suit him a little bit more tomorrow the longer rather than punchy climbs. But yeah, obviously if it's a flat sprint at the end, he's got no chance. And as well, the parkour has got a descent into the finish. So even if he breaks clear, that's uh, not great for him either. So that's why he's a really dark horse. Um, <laughs> not a favourite. Um, but yeah, other than that, if it's raining really heavily, maybe maybe it's really cold then and someone like Wellens comes into play or even like Bob Jungles. Um, people that can resist the cold well. Bagioli, we haven't mentioned him. Maybe Quickstep, uh, try and use him in a breakaway or something as well to take pressure off setting pace for Alaphilippe. That would be a smart thing to do. Uh, or maybe they want to keep... Yeah, they probably keep Bob Jungles with Alaphilippe and then put someone like Bagioli into a breakaway. Um, maybe they'll do that. But yeah, that's Liège, Baston Liège tomorrow. 
it literally doesn't stop around here. We've got second stage with a similar punchy finish in Giro d'Italia. Probably not hard enough for Fulsang. Obviously, Fulsang is not at Liège to defend his title. Probably a little bit too early to say whether he should have gone to Liège instead of going to go for the GC at the Giro, even though he's lost 90 seconds today. For the women's Liège, we've got a course that's 135 kilometers in length, not as many climbs, uh, but they still have the same climbs, the Côte de la Redoute and the Côte de la Rochefoucauld, uh, 1.3Ks at 10.1%. And so very, it's pretty much the same finale, really. And um, we've got all the main names you, you're all familiar with, um, Van der Breggen, Lippert, Chantal van der Broek-Black, Annemiek van Vleuten, uh, Demi Vollering. Who else? We've got Mariana Voss, obviously, Lizzie Dagnan, Elisa Longo-Borghini, Nilia Doma. I think uh, Marta Bastianelli's here. That's probably a little bit too hard for her. Ellen van Dijk. So, Ashley Mulman. So, the previous winners, obviously, last year, Annemiek van Vleuten won, but 17-18 was Anna van der Bregen, and I'm pretty sure it's televised next year. Oh, sorry, this year as well, just like Flesh was. So, we'll be able to watch this as well. Amanda Spratt came second in 2018, but she's not here. Demi Vollering had a pretty good result last year, third. So, I mean, I could try and be all fancy with it and tell you, <laughs> like, a dark horse or whatever, but Anna van der Breggen is the prohibitive favourite for tomorrow, um, and I think she's going to win again. She's just way too strong right now. I don't see... Like, I know Van Vleuten's here, and I don't think she was at flesh, but... Anna van der Breggen's team looks stronger and more well-organised than Mitchton Scott at the moment, and van der Breggen, I think, is stronger than van Vleuten. We saw that at the end of at, in, in, in Imola. Like, van Vleuten was going full gas, and van der Breggen stepped off her, like, so easily. And I think the Galas down in the climb with, I don't know how many k's to go, 40 k's to go or something. So, yeah, van der Breggen, I think, will win this. From where, I'm not sure. Probably will wait for... The last climb would make sense, to be honest, and just launch it up there, just like she did on Mur de Hui, and <laughs> for the whole kilometre and rode everyone off her wheel pretty much, except for Vollering. And, uh, yeah, she'll just be able to TT away for the last 11Ks if she gets a gap on that climb, and I don't see anyone bringing her back. Um, do you have any different view on the race, Benji, and or different pick? Yeah, I've got the same pick. I said it earlier, I'm going to go for the um, world champions of both men and women's race. And I think that they're both going to succeed in bringing LBL to uh, towards themselves. The thing about LBL for Alaphilippe, though, is with the men's race in mind again, is that he's not really had a good history with this race. So I hope that he can make that up and make that uh, a good thing this year and use this uh, World Championships bonus, as I would call it, to take that race home. And with Van der Breggen, we, well, we saw it flesh that she was stronger than the rest, although the difference was closer than I expected. So, yeah, it won't be easy for her to win either, but I think that it's going to be a, a similar strategy or tactic that you named and that it's going to play out like that and that Van der Breggen will end up on top. She was kind of taking the piss at Flesh, though. Like, she legit just rode on the front. <laughs> like I feel like if she'd ridden on the wheels a little bit and then attacked like she did in Imola, um, it would have been a bigger gap. Uh, whereas Vollering, I guess, had a bit of energy to attack around her. But yeah, Van der Breggen prohibitive favourite. 
full flesh for Liège women. I picked Hirschi for men's Liège. Benji's picked Hirschi, uh, Alaphilippe for men's Liège. That's the end of the podcast for today. Giro stage one, Bing Bang Tour stage five, and Liège preview men and women. We'll be back tomorrow, of course. This is the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast brought to you by Lacole. Thanks as always to Benji Nice and my co-host. We'll see you later. Ciao.